Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. I hope everybody is doing well in this crazy experience that we're having with uh, all kinds of things going on across the country and across the world, as a matter of fact. Uh, So, but however, today I am just delighted to introduce you to Sam Petito, a friend of mine from Southern Colorado, Durango, Colorado. Hi, Sam. Hi, Francie. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about drug dog evidence today, but just before we get started, as I was telling you offline, I was looking through your CV, which is really uh, incredible, and uh, I you know, these, there were things I didn't know about you, like uh, you graduated from the Naval Academy, for example. I didn't know that, and uh, go ahead. I didn't graduate. <laughs> didn't graduate. Oh, no. well, you went there. No, <laughs> I did. Yep, yep, and... Uh, uh, had my fill. You had your fill. So now that's an interesting story. What happened there? Well, I went there because I thought those people walked on water. And when I got there, I just had a different experience. I saw cheating in probably half the classes that I took and, you know, wow. did some hard thinking and decided if, if this is what it's really like, I don't want to be part of it. You know, since then, since leaving, I've talked to plenty of other people who went to school there both before my class and after my class, who've told me that that's not the norm. That is atypical, and apparently my class is notorious in the annals of Naval Academy history as being one of the worst classes they've ever had. Wow. So, you know, I was just, just there at the wrong time, but it was a great school. I, I still look back on all my experiences there uh, and find myself smiling. So, you know, it was a great experience and I still have some friends that I went to school with there that I stay in touch with, but I was just, just happened to be there at the wrong time. Interesting. What year was that? I was class of 91. Wow. Well, that's, that must've been upsetting. I can't imagine that, uh, cause you, I know what it takes to get into the Naval Academy or any of those academies and you must've been very disappointed. I was, and you know, you know, I walked away from a million dollar education and a, a great career. But just like everything else in my life that's happened, that in the moment seemed like a really bad thing, uh, you know, looking back on it now, I can see that I wouldn't be in the position I am today if I hadn't had that negative experience. So you know, it's hard to be upset about it. That's true. That's true. So. Um so I was really interested in this position of virtual submarine project coordinator. Mm-hmm. How that um, that was a civilian contractor. How did that work? Okay, I, I was living in Phoenix, looking for a job in Phoenix. I was an Oracle database administrator at the time, and I, I left my job in uh, Northern Virginia during kind of like the beginning of the dot com boom, and moved out to Phoenix for a girl who then decided that she didn't want to be boyfriend, girlfriend anymore. Um, Um. And my resume was out there. It said, Phoenix only, will not relocate, will not travel, because I loved Phoenix. And the only job offer that I got said, um, must relocate to Hawaii, must do it within (laughs) two weeks, and must travel 50% of the time. 
And I, I was literally you know, <laughs> sleeping on the sofa in my ex-girlfriend's house with all my things packed up in boxes, waiting to get an apartment in Phoenix, thinking I was going to stay there. And this opportunity came along, so I took it. And what I ended up doing was helping some developers from Oracle Corporation and a guy who had been on a fast attack boat in the Submariner service put together the software that they were using for kind of aggregating all of the non-tactical data aboard submarines. So my, my area that I covered was the entire Pacific Ocean. So they put me in Hawaii because my, my area ranged from Sasebo, Japan, in the northwest, down to Guam in the southwest, Jeez. and up to Bremerton, Washington in the northeast, <laughs> and down to San Diego in the southeast. So they wanted me in the middle, and I could fly to all these places easily. And my, my job was essentially fly around to all these bases and install this software on every submarine in the Pacific Ocean. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, the, my most memorable experience is uh, one of the ships that I got on was a boomer, a, a ballistic missile submarine. And, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Hunt for Red October, there's that scene where he walks into the missile bay and you look down there and it's like this huge football field filled with these, like, they look like grain silos, but they're missile silos. And mm. having seen that movie, I always thought, oh, that really looks fake. And then I had a chance to walk into <laughs> one of those missile bays. It, it, it's exactly what it looks it like on TV. Fake. I couldn't believe how enormous this oh, room was and how enormous those silos were. So, yeah, all, oh, wow. all the work that I did on that whole project, that's my one takeaway memory. If I only have one, just my jaw doesn't hang open very often, but I'm sure it was hanging open when I stepped through that hatch and, and got to take a look down there. Well, you know, uh, Sam, this just underscores the various talents that are across the country that private investigators have, because we all come from a variety of experiences, and you're a perfect example of having all kinds of experiences you can draw on in your investigation capacity. It's very cool. Yeah, and, and it's, it's finally a job that's held my attention. You know, a lot of jobs, I would stay in for a couple of years and just kind of get bored. But this is, mm-hmm. this is a career where no matter how much I might know about one specific area, there's so much to learn in all the other areas that you can specialize in. It's, it's like a never-ending process. I'll never learn anything. That's what keeps me excited about it. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. You never stop learning. It changes. Not only do you not ever get there, <laughs> but it keeps changing in the middle of it. It's so, yeah it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, I thought it was really fun that you were a police cadet before you were a uh, police officer, too. That was kind of, that's kind of cool. Because uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't that doesn't happen frequently, where a police cadet becomes a police officer. It does happen, but it's not uh, probably the norm. Are, are you, a police cadet is somebody who's in the police academy. So just about every oh, police I'm sorry. cadet okay. becomes a police officer. You mean, okay. you mean a midshipman at the Naval Academy? No, no. I was thinking. Uh, actually, I was thinking of probably a uh, a kid that starts out as a cadet in a police department and then goes on to be a, but I didn't realize that meant you were in the police academy. Yeah. A, a cadet is, yeah, that, that's what, a cadet okay. is what the trainee police in the academy are normally called. They're, they're not always called that, but generally that's what okay. they're called. Okay. My bad. Misinterpreted. Okay. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Yep. See there, there is a perfect example. 
So you went to work for the Durango uh, Police Department, and um, you eventually became, uh, I guess after a few years, the, a canine handler. Right. I started in 2006, and I got appointed to the handler position in the beginning of 2010 and got matched up with my dog for training in October of 2010. Okay. All right. And then, um, go ahead. I was just going to say, usually uh, departments won't make an officer a canine handler until they've had several years of experience on patrol showing that they can actually do the job and understand the laws and can follow procedures because a, you know, a, a dog is just an additional complicating asset that you're handing to any officer. So if the officer is not good at doing you know, regular police stuff, you don't want to add more work to that by giving them a job. For sure. Yeah, I would think that uh, you need some exceptional skills of working with the public as well as working with a dog because you have to do them together many times. Yep, that's true. And uh, something, something else that goes along with it is that there is an entire specialty area of canine law that a canine handler has to be aware of, whether, whether it's working a patrol dog or a drug dog or a, a bomb dog or a dual-purpose dog that does a couple of those things. There's all this extra law that you have to understand and be able to apply on the fly in addition to state statutes or local municipal statutes or even federal law. Well, since you brought, since you brought up dogs, let's talk about dogs. Since, uh, okay. Because I... We read an article that you had written, re- talked about reviewing dog drug dog evidence, and it's a primer for legal investigators. So let's let's start at the beginning. When you get a dog, where do you go from there? When I get a dog as an officer, or or reviewing dog. Cases uh, when you get a dog as an officer. When you get a dog as an officer. Okay. Okay. So um, there are a couple ways that it happens. Sometimes a Let's assume brand new handler, never held a leash before. Um, Sometimes you will get a dog that's fully trained and the training that you do with the dog is just someone teaching the handler how to handle the dog. Sometimes uh, a new handler will get paired up with a new dog and both the dog and the handler will get trained at the same time together. Um, Mm. And in that case, the handler gets to see how to train a dog from being a green dog or a a brand new unskilled dog to being a dog that's ready to go out there and do work on the street. In in my particular case, 90% of the work with my dog was already done before they handed me the leash on the first day. So I was in a situation where the dog already knew how to find drugs and the dog already knew how to search for evidence and it already knew how to bite people if the handler commanded it to. Um, So my 10 weeks of training was just someone simply teaching me how to handle the dog, putting me in different scenarios and saying, nope, you screwed that up and here's why we don't do it that way. We should do it this way. So let's do the scenario again. And then um, here's all of the federal law that goes along with the drug dog or a patrol dog. And when I got back to Colorado, I had to figure out if there was any additional state law that applied in addition to the federal law or sometimes in in conflict with federal law. Hmm. So how are are the dogs chosen? 
Good question. Uh, very carefully, it's not a quick process. Um, I would say uh, if you've ever seen a, like, let's just, I had a German Shepherd who was a dual purpose dog. He did patrol work and drug work. Um, if you start with a hundred dogs that uh, are all German Shepherds and have all been bred to be police dogs, they're tested. Um, they're tested for their uh, ability to search, for their willingness to search, for their willingness to not stop searching, um, for their bravery, if they're going to be a dual-purpose dog, um, and also for their affability, you know, because mm. uh, unlike what a lot of people think, just because my dog is trained to bite people doesn't mean I want a monster that just is ready to bite anybody at any time. You know, I, I, I had a dog with a very clear on and off switch, and that's, you know, uh, the, the perfect dog doesn't exist, but that's what a really good uh, patrol or dual purpose patrol narcotics dog will be like. When it's at work, he's switched on and ready to go. If I tell him to do something I do, he'll do it. And if, you know, if we're around a bunch of Cub Scouts for a, a, a meet and greet, he's, mm-hmm. he's a happy, goofy dog with his tongue hanging out and letting kids pet him and stick their mm. fingers in his ears. And, you know, he, he, he's like a regular dog. You could never be able to tell that he's a police dog. That, that's the ideal. Um, mm-hmm. So after all that training or a- after the selection process, then training begins. And a lot of dogs are weeded out in the training process, either because they don't work out well for the drug work or they don't work out well for the patrol work. Sometimes they don't work out well for either even though they've successfully made it through that initial selection process. So if you think of it like a pyramid and you start with a hundred dogs at the bottom on the wide part, eventually by the time you get to the top, there might only be eight or 10 of those first hundred who end up being capable of doing dual purpose work where they can, they can do apprehension work and they can also do detection work. And below those 10, there's maybe another 20 or 30 who are good for single purpose work. They have the drive to detection, but not the nerve to do patrol, or they have the nerve for patrol, but just aren't as interested in doing detection work as it seemed like they would be back during the selection process. And then below that, you know, the rest of the dogs are probably going to end up either being search and rescue dogs or go out to the community to make good pets for families. Just they didn't have what it took to, to work up to the top of that pyramid. Hmm. Interesting. So what does a patrol dog do? What's the difference? Well, a patrol dog is a dog that's used for locating people and, if necessary, biting people. Um, okay. And the, re- the reason that the dogs are trained to bite people is because it's, it, it gives the officers, the, the actual humans, it gives them an additional layer of safety. If you stab somebody and you run away and you're hiding underneath a car, mm-hmm. how do I get you out of there? You know, right. I don't want to get stabbed. I don't want to get cut at all. So, you know, c- can we wait you out? Sure. A lot of departments don't have the resources, though, to wait somebody out for 24 or 36 hours, however long it might take you to decide this is ridiculous, I'm just going to come out and go to jail or come out and fight or come out and try and run again. Uh, but, you know, you've, you've committed a felony by stabbing someone and now you're trying to evade arrest 
by hiding under the car so we can't get you. So that, that justifies a high enough level of force that we could put a dog in there to grab onto you. And then, you know, kind of like fishing, you know, the, the dog is the hook, you're the fish, and the leash is the fishing line, and I just use the line to pull the dog and you out from under the car so that we can get you into custody. So is it, is it dangerous to put the dog in that situation? It is, but it's, it's more dangerous to put a person in that situation. So patrol dogs are used both for their nose, mostly, to find people that you and I wouldn't be able to find because we can't see them or smell them or hear them, and then also sometimes they're used in that apprehension role um, to get someone into custody who it would be dangerous otherwise for the officer to try and take into custody him or herself. So how does the, how do you keep the dog from getting hurt? If you have somebody that is a, a stabber, for example, why wouldn't he stab the dog? Sometimes they do. But um, my dog, for instance, had a vest that it would wear anytime we were on a high-risk op where – uh, there was a, a knife or a gun involved, I would put his vest on him. And okay. he, you know, unlike me, my vest was only bulletproof. Uh, his vest was bulletproof stab proof. and stab proof, right? Yeah, um, cool. So, uh, but yeah, so my, my dog, fortunately, my, my dog was never injured in any of the apprehensions that we did. Uh, but, you know, from, I think we found 46 people or we're we're credited with taking 46 people into custody. He only had to bite one person out of 46. Okay. A lot of people just surrender when they see the dog. It's interesting psychology too, as kind of a side note. Um, We've had people at gunpoint who would not comply, but as soon as I get the dog out of the car, they put down the weapon, throw up their hands, they, like they just give up. They, yeah, I they, would. It's almost like, I would do that. It's almost like they don't believe we'll shoot them, but they do believe we'll put the dog on them. Yeah, so it's, it's, great, it's a great way to de-escalate situations and not have to use force on somebody who otherwise is, is almost forcing us to use force on them to get them into custody. Because just turning around and walking away and saying, oh, well, you don't want to surrender. Okay, I guess we'll just go away. That's not how cops operate. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, they've seen all those cop shows, <laughs> for sure. Anyway, we're gonna, Sam, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back okay. with Sam Petito. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to FRANCIE at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Sam Petito, and we're talking about. Uh, Dogs and police officers and working with uh, patrol dogs and drug dogs and all those kind of things. And Sam, I was just thinking, I can just imagine the dog training you and him just shaking his head. (laughs) Oh, he did it again. (laughs) Happens plenty of times. Yep, (laughs) plenty of times. I learned a lot of patience from having that dog. I'll bet. I'll bet. So... What is a when a dog when you give a command to, to a dog? I suspect the dog may even know it's a wrong command and follows it anyway. Do you think well, that's true? I, I don't know if they know it's a wrong command, but yeah, I mean, they'll a well trained dog does what I tell it to do, and and the the confusion that you're alluding to um, that's the kind of thing that you try and work out in training, which is why I put. You know, handlers, if they are doing their training properly, should expose their dogs to as many different environments as possible and mm-hmm. put them in as many realistic training scenarios as possible. Like, for instance, um, most of the time, if we show up at a building at night um, because there's a burglary alarm, mm-hmm. um, I or one of the other officers will make an announcement in the building, um, police we have the building surrounded, surrender, or we'll send the dog to find you. Um, you know, and we give people two or three warnings, trying to allow them to surrender before we send the dog in. The dog gets keyed up because he knows this is a fun game. Go find the person. Um, <laughs> right. if, if we show up to a building and I need him to search the building for drugs, there is none of that yelling that happens. Um, there aren't a bunch of other officers around. There's usually only one or two other officers or maybe a detective there during a drug search. So he understands, okay, this is the game where I sniff for heroin or cocaine or meth, and if I find it, I get my ball. Um, mm-hmm. There are sometimes situations, like we, we did it in training, where in the middle of a drug search, somebody walks in with a hidden bite sleeve, and you know they start uh, getting really unruly and do something that causes to be arrestable, or maybe it's, it's a, a felony warrant suspect we were looking for, and they disappear mm-hmm. in this scenario, 
The dog has to be able to switch from I'm sniffing for drugs to Sam just told me to bite this guy, so I have to bite him. So we we practice doing that um, so that if that situation came up when we're working on the street, that he he wouldn't be confused because that could be dangerous for him, for me, and for all the other officers and, and any civilians that might be there if he's hesitant to do exactly what I tell him to do, regardless of whether or not he understands why he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does, if, if, if the dog hasn't actually smelled something of the person, how does he know what to look for when you send him in to get a person? That's my job. My job is to make sure that he's targeted on the person who I want to be apprehended and not one of the other people standing around. I mean, if, if, if you are standing with two other people within arm's length of each other, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't target him on you specifically, but if, if you're, let's say, standing in a corner and there are some other people in another corner, I can point him toward you. I see. Um, get him ready to get him ready to go for you. Give you one last chance to surrender before I send him to apprehend you. And I make sure that he is focused on you and lunging toward you and keyed up on you, so that when I give him the release command, if somebody walks in from the side or something. He, he might be distracted by that person. He might right. go directly to you, or he might turn and start going for that person that neither of us saw before I gave him the command to go, but that's why recalls are also important, and we practice that all the time. If After I've let him loose, if you all of a sudden decide to surrender, you're no longer mm-hmm. biteable. Or mm-hmm. if somebody happens to get between the two of you who is not biteable, I have to verbally be able to say to him, stop, either lay down right there or come back to me, but don't bite. I know I just told you to go bite them a second ago, but now two seconds later, I'm saying, stop, don't bite them. Um, and that's, that's a call off. And that's something that every officer with a patrol dog has to practice. And any officer who is certifying has to demonstrate that they can do with their dog. It's having off-leash control of your dog and um, places that I've been to to certify. That's one of the first things that they do after basic obedience. And if you can't call your dog off, you don't even get to participate in the rest of the certification process because you don't have, you don't have good control. Yeah, of your control. Dog. Interesting. So you have, then it sounds like you must have to have the person in your line of sight. Is that, no. is that true? No, no you, you don't. don't. But if let's, let's say it's a burglary. Um, yeah. If we show up at a, a, a medical marijuana dispensary and there's a burglar alarm, it's three o'clock in the morning, the lights are off, we've contacted the responsible person for the shop, the owner, and said, hey, is anybody supposed to be in your shop at three o'clock? And she says, absolutely not. That means that anybody inside the building is now arrestable for what in Colorado is the felony of second degree burglary. Um, okay. So we set up, we make announcements, we give them a chance to surrender. If they don't surrender... We send the dog in to locate them, if necessary, to bite them, but we don't have to see where the person is in order for the dog to find it because the dog has practiced this over and over enough. He knows that anybody that he finds in there might get bit. Now, there are, there are dogs, a lot of dogs are trained to go into the building and bite anybody that they find. Um, mm. better training, like the, the kind of training that I had, which was, I don't know, maybe cutting edge is the wrong term, but um, my dog was trained only to bite somebody if I told him to. So mm. 
where some agencies will just send their dog in there and wait to hear somebody scream, knowing that the dog found them, or wait to hear the dog bark, meaning that the dog has located them behind a door but can't physically get to them. Instead of doing that, we would move slowly through the building. I would send him ahead of me a little bit, um, see if he detected anybody. If not, we would move up to where he was and send him ahead again and search the building that way. If he located somebody, he was trained to alert me by barking that the person is there, whether it's behind a door or out in the open, and then not bite the person unless I give him the command to do that. That way, the officer decides who gets force used on them. It's not the dog deciding who gets force used on them. Interesting. So, um, I'm looking at your article here, Sam, that talks about the training for dogs. So, they actually have to go through 16 hours every month, every dog, every drug dog does, or every yeah, dog. That's, that's, the, that's the national standard for every police dog, 16 hours of training a month. Really? And there's, there's nothing that says, you know, like four hours a week is normally... Like all the people that I know, that's what they would use, four hours a week, because you can do it one hour a day, or you can do it four hours on your first day of work or your last day of work, and over the course of a you know, four-week month, that adds up to 16 hours. You can do more than 16 if you want. If you have the luxury of extra training time, you can take advantage of that, but 16 hours is the standard, and what's interesting is that 16 hours is the standard whether you have a single-purpose dog who only detects the odors of drugs mm-hmm. or whether you have a, a, a dual or multi-purpose dog that detects the odors of, let's say, drugs and also finds physical evidence and also does patrol work um, and also has obedience training. You know, I, I, it doesn't have to be 16 hours per month of each specialty. It just right. has to be a total of 16 hours per month. And how often does the drug handler, I mean, the dog handler get trained? Well, if, if you're talking about an instructor teaching the handler, here's some new stuff that we've learned about how to handle your dog properly, that's up to the handler or the handler's agency to determine how often they either have um, training brought into their agency or how often they go away for training. But just that, that 16 hours of training the dog, that's the handler working with the right. dog 16 hours right. a month to get that training done. Some handlers, unfortunately, have to train by themselves some part or all of the time. Other handlers have the luxury of being able to get together with additional handlers from that agency or additional handlers from nearby agencies um, to be able to train in groups and teams. And that way, the more experienced handlers can help the newer handlers. The newer handlers cannot just get advice from listening to more experienced handlers while they're working their own dog, but they can also walk around and watch more experienced handlers working more experienced dogs and say, oh, that's a much better way to do that. That's not how I was trained at my handler school, but I see why they do this, and I'm going to try doing this method instead because it seems to work better here in in this area on solving this problem. So there's no uh, standard on dog handlers training then? Correct. And the, uh, I can tell you that w- what happens in general is that when I am assigned to be a handler for my unit, if it's like most agencies in the country where we don't have our own in-house 
um, you know, platoons of dog and an in-house trainer and an in-house instructors like LA, the mm-hmm. LAPD, they have everything available in-house. In my particular case, I went to a different state to a private vendor whose business was training police dogs and people to be police handlers. So I went there for my initial training. And after that, I came back. The rest of the training for the, for the life of the dog, for our time together as a team, that's up to me to make sure it happens. And that's where that 16 hours comes in. I see. And so tell me about the certification. What does that involve? Well, the, the certification is just a series of tests designed to show that a handler and the handler's dog can, can properly do the jobs that they're out on the street doing. So, for instance, um, with a, a drug certification, if my dog detects the odor of specific drugs, I go to the certification and some other handlers who are part of the certifying organization, they have hidden, let's say they've hidden some heroin in one room and they've hidden some cocaine in another room and they've hidden meth in a third room. And they have a couple other rooms that have nothing in them, no drug odor at all. Or maybe they'll put a distraction in there, like one room will have nothing, and the other room will have um, some hot dogs or some roast beef hidden in a file drawer. So I take mm-hmm. my dog into this building. Let's just use an office building as an example. Um, okay. I know that there is coke and heroin and mess in this building somewhere. What I don't know is whether the room that I'm walking into is hot or not, meaning whether there's a drug odor available for the dog there. I don't know that. Um, I also know that a couple of these rooms are not going to have anything. So it's up to me to work the dog all the way through the room and get the dog's nose in odor if it's there. And then if the dog tells me that there's drug odor here, I have to announce that to one of the certifying officials. And then I go on to the next room. Now, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know that until after the certification process is over and oh, they wow. tell me, yeah, you were, you were right on all these. So I walk through each of the five rooms and I tell them whether, there's, whether I think there's something here or not based on what I'm seeing my dog doing. That, that's that's a, a real high-level overview of how a certification works. And to, to make sure that it's a fair test, um, it's always realistic uh, environments that are used, you know, buildings, mm-hmm. vehicles, um, buses or airplanes, you know, and every time that the uh, certification is set up, the, the certifying officials who are usually also handlers working their own dog, um, they'll take their dogs through there and check to make sure that if there's cocaine hidden in this shoebox up on this shelf, that their dog, who is trained to alert to the odor of cocaine, will say to them, yes, I smell some kind of drug odor here. Because they want to make sure that it's a fair test for the rest of the handlers that are there trying to certify. So if, if, if two dogs from certifying officials can walk through and say, yes, here, yes, here, yes, here, no, here, no, here, then they know it's a fair test for everyone else who's going to bring their dog in to try and recertify or, or certify for the first time. Okay, so a drug a drug dog would be able to uh, detect all of the uh, illegal substances. I mean, no, it, 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 it depends specific? on what the dog has been trained for. Like okay, the, the most the most common substances are heroin, cocaine, and meth. 
because across the board, those are illegal everywhere. Uh, okay. Marijuana, it depends on the state where you are. Like <laughs> right. in Colorado, there are no longer marijuana dogs because marijuana is legal here both medicinally and recreationally. But mm-hmm. in another state, I, I can't think of a state right now where I know for sure marijuana is just as illegal as cocaine, but there are still states like that that don't even have medicinal yeah. marijuana. In those states, those dogs are still trained to detect weed. Um, yeah. Ecstasy is another common one that dogs are trained to locate not mm-hmm. just because it's a popular recreational drug and, and felonious to possess it in all 50 states, but also because training dogs to locate the odor of ecstasy is pretty simple. I don't know the science behind it, but what I was told is that to the dog, ecstasy smells very similar to meth. I don't know if it's because there are common precursor chemicals used mm-hmm. in both of them mm-hmm. or what, but um, I got certified on meth at a certification while I was waiting to go through um, and somebody just said, hey, does your dog find ecstasy? And I said, no, man. <laughs> he finds coke, arrow, and a mess. And they're like, well, here, try some ecstasy. I bet your dog will find it because it's a lot like meth. So I did. And that later that same day, I went in. And as an additional odor, I went into a room where some ecstasy was hidden. He found it. He told me it was there. I told the instructor that it was there. And boom, we're certified on ecstasy in addition to heroin, coke, and meth. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So and you, there, are, there are places that will train dogs to find, you could train a dog to find psilocybin mushrooms, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of places you can train dogs to find, you know, like bomb dogs are trained to find precursor chemicals that, the odors of those chemicals that are used to make explosives like, um, you know, TNT or C4 or black mm-hmm. powder. A lot of prisons, prisons train dogs to find cell phone batteries because guys really? that are in prison will have a cell phone right. smuggled into them and use it to conduct operations outside, outside the fence. Um, but the dogs are trained. There's something about the odor of that cell phone battery that the dog is able to learn to detect. And apparently it's an odor unlike anything else, but yeah, that, that's, you know, that's what I was talking about at the beginning. It's fascinating to me that you could teach a dog to find not just batteries, but cell phone batteries. Right. But yet they do it. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe the dogs that find cell phone batteries would find anything with the battery. I don't know enough about it. That's, that's not my area, yeah. but um, it, it's just really interesting. And of course, there's cadaver dogs, too, that are taught to find decaying remains. Decaying sure, human sure. Re- I, remains. Not only just remains, but human remains. Yep. Which is interesting. Yep, and, and some of those dogs are trained to find live people and dead people. Right. And search and rescue is another really fascinating field. Yes, it, very much so. So, Sam, we have to take another break. Uh, okay. We'll be right back with Sam Petito. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hi there. We're talking about uh, drug dog evidence and and uh, training and certifying drug dogs. So, in your article, Sam, you said that uh, just like invest, you made the analogy of investigators. Uh, dogs needed to be trained, certified, and reliable, just like legal investigators, which I thought was a great uh, little analogy. But um, so we talked about training and certification. What about reliability? How can you? How do you know you can depend on your dog? Well, that's that's something that you demonstrate looking backwards after the fact by doing the training and then accurately documenting what happened during the training. For example, if I put out uh, 10 drug sources during the course of a, a training exercise and let's say two distractions, I'll hide some hot dogs and um, some duct tape. I, I take my dog through all 12 of those uh, locations, there's 10 drug odors to find and two distractions that he could be interested in but should not say yes to. Um, Uh So 10 times he should say yes, 
two times he should just walk away. Um, if at the end of that, he did 10 right um, for the drugs and did, let's say he said uh, no to the hot dogs like he should have, but he said yes to the duct tape. In other words, he indicated to me that there is drug odor here when there is none. Only duct tape is hidden there. That means I've got a problem that I need to, I need to fix. So he's, he's good on the drug odors. He's 100% there, and he is good on the food, but he is wrong on the duct tape. And duct tape, I, I threw that in there just because that's a common item that's used to seal loads of drugs to try and make the packaging airtight. Um, not everybody uses duct tape, but it, it, it's common. So that's an odor that I want to proof my dog off of, just like hot dogs or clear plastic or um, you know, anything that might be used in normal packaging of illegal drugs, I want to make sure the dog doesn't say yes to the packaging and only says yes to the odor of the drugs itself. When that exercise is over, um, I record 10 correct entries for the drug odors, one correct entry for the distraction of food, and one incorrect entry for the duct tape. Um, and, and you know what? Let me make the math easier. I had eight drug odors, one hot dog, and one duct tape. So he was correct 90% of the time. 80% comes from the drugs. He got all the drugs right. He found them when they were there to find. The hot dogs, he sniffed it, but then walked away, which is what he's supposed to. So he's right there. That gives him 90% uh, correct, but he's 10% incorrect because he said yes to duct tape when he shouldn't have. So his, his accuracy in those 10 exercises is 90%. And I keep track of that. Every day that I train and over the long haul, you can look back and say, my dog is accurate 94% of the time or 82% of the time. And and there are really only four possible outcomes from any exercise that I do. If it's a drug odor that's there and he finds it, then he's correct. Sometimes you can hide a drug odor and he'll sniff and walk away. And even if I take him back and let him sniff a little more, he'll still walk away. I can't explain why he's not saying yes, but I count that as him being wrong because he's missed an odor source that's there that I know he should be able to find. So it's there and okay. he finds it or it's there and he misses it. The other, so, two, the other two possibilities are there's nothing there and he tells me there's nothing there by sniffing like he should and then walking away and saying, come on, dad, let's, let's go somewhere else. I want to have some fun. There's nothing here. Um, that's one example. And then the other example when um, there's nothing there is that like with that duct tape, he says yes, either to something he shouldn't say yes to, or he says yes for some reason that I just can't explain. Then that's, that's the other two possibilities. So it's not there and he tells me it's not there or it's not there, but for some reason he says it is there. I keep track of all four of those possibilities on every exercise that I do over the course of months or years so that when I find 30 pounds of heroin during a traffic stop later on and go to court, the defense says, hey, we want to see your training records and find out if you've trained your dog properly. I say, okay, here's all my training records. Here's my certifications. My dog in training was accurate, uh, let's say, 94% of the time. And in certification, he was accurate 98% of the time. It's then up to the defense to hire someone like me in my capacity now to go through those records and make sure, first of all, that they're accurate. 
Secondly, that they meet the standards and then tell the defense attorney either the records are good or the records are not good or, you know, somewhere in the middle. And then the defense attorney can ask the judge to rule that my dog is not reliable because let's say it's, let's say it's only accurate 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. Whether or not a judge wants to say 50% is accurate enough to substantiate probable cause to search, that's the judge's call. And like I wrote in that article, sometimes, you know, 70% is good. Sometimes 80% is good. Sometimes mm-hmm. 74%, a judge will say not good enough. And I think uh, the, the lowest accuracy percentage that I'm aware of is from an eighth, uh, I think it was the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals case. A judge there said 54% accuracy still established probable cause. And wow, that's, that's like as good a as a guess. Yeah, but um, so it's it's my job to keep track as the handler. It's my job to keep mm-hmm. track of his accuracy, but it's the judge's job to determine whether or not the dog is reliable based on that accuracy. And it's the defense attorney's uh, job to ask the questions about the certification, which I'll bet yes, doesn't happen because often. E- e- right. E- even though the burden of proof is on the prosecution, if mm-hmm. if the defense doesn't investigate. I mean, I, I've had, you know, I bet, I bet almost half the cases that I've worked on have been dismissed, all but one for poor record keeping or poor training. Like, in other words, not meeting the standard, not doing enough, not doing 16 hours. Um, but if, if the defense doesn't have a consultant to look at the records and know, mm-hmm. know what should be there and know what might be missing from there, they have no way to challenge the prosecution or the handler and say, sorry, dude, but you did not meet the standard that you're being held to. And it's your job to meet it. You've got to prove that you did it. We don't have to prove that you didn't. But in the absence of that knowledge, a defense team could not even ask for the training records, much less examine them and find out that they're deficient. So that they could end up not doing um, justice for their client. So what about falsifying the records? Have you seen that happen? Well, can it happen? Sure. Um, I'm not aware of that ever happening, and it's just from the cases I've reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my, and I, I saw this as an officer, too. It, it seems like police, the police that I worked with and the other handlers that I've worked and trained with, they understand that people have unrealistic expectations of them. But they also understand you can screw a lot of things up and still keep your job as long as you tell the truth and right. take your that's loans. True. You yep, know, if, that's if, true. If I only train my dog 14 hours this month, I record, I only train my dog 14 hours this month. Next month, I'm going to go overboard and probably train him 20 or 22 or 24 hours, even if I have to do it on my own time. If my, if my department has said, we don't have the staffing to let you train eight hours a week, you can only get four because that's what we have to let you do. If my dog is doing well, I'll stick with that four hours. If my dog is not doing well or, or as well as I want him to do, I'll go train on my own time to make sure that he's doing as well as I want him to do. So mm-hmm. um, could, could, can handlers falsify their records? Of course they could. But from what I've seen, handlers are, they have no problem admitting my dog missed heroin. My dog said yes to duct tape when he shouldn't have because 
All you have to do is document that and then document the training that you did with your dog to correct the problem that you have. You know, if, if you don't make this, the number of training hours you need this week, that's okay. Like if I'm on vacation for two weeks, I don't have to take my dog with me and train him while I'm at the beach or up in the mountains. It's mm-hmm. just those next two weeks of training, I'm going to at least make four hours a week for two weeks. If I can't make 16, and when we get to court, if a judge says, hey, Sam, why this, or the, you know, the defense attorney, if, if I'm an officer and the defense attorney says, you didn't train your dog for 16 weeks during this particular month of February, I can say, you're right, I was out of town and I didn't take my dog. It's up to the judge to decide whether or not that's reasonable right. or unreasonable and then decide, you know, how to continue. But that happens. You know, people get sick. Dogs get sick. Dogs get mm-hmm. injured. It, it's, so it's, it's a reasonable standard. And if, when I get as a defense consultant, when I ask an attorney for records, I ask for 12 months worth of records. So I look back through the previous 12 months leading up to the date of the defendant's arrest. And if most of the months are 16 hours or more, and one month for some reason is less, there's usually an explanation written in there because handlers know the defense and the court is going to look at this stuff. So they, the whole purpose of keeping records is to demonstrate to anybody that asks that not only did I do the training I was supposed to do and do it properly, but I have documented it. So you don't just have to take me at my word that I always do what I'm supposed to do. I wrote it down for you. So anytime you want to see it, you can. Okay, this is uh, fascinating, Sam. We've got only a couple minutes left, but but you made a statement, which I think is really important to bring out, that if a prosecution cannot prove that the team, the canine team, met or exceeded the standard, the date of arrest and the date whenever these activities happened, then the, the uh, evidence should be suppressed. And I guess you've Correct. been yep. successful in doing that on a number of occasions. Yes. And, and it, it's not anything magical that I did as a consultant. I just, I reviewed the records, knowing what the records should look like. And I went back to the attorney and said, this guy has done 15 hours of obedience and one hour of drug training every single month for six months. And then I explained to the attorney, you might be able to get a judge to say, that's not good enough if he's using this dog to do searches right. on people's cars to find drugs. But I also explained to the attorney 16 hours is the standard. There's nothing that says it has to be 16 hours of drugs or half drugs, half obedience. So um, all, that, all that I'm hired to do as a defense consultant is to examine the records and tell the defense attorney the exact same thing that I would tell the prosecutor if they hired me to look at these records. You know, that's, that's part of what I like about the job. I don't have to take a side. I just strictly examine what's in front of me and then analyze it and provide that analysis to the attorney I'm working for with an explanation. Here's what's good for your client. Here's what's bad for your client. Here's some stuff that's not explained. We need more information about, but it's just, I lay out facts. Okay. Um, Well, we're out of, and we're out of time, Sam. We'll leave it at that. But if you want to reach Sam, if you have a case with a canine, a drug dog, go to his website called discreetdetection.com. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Francie. Okay, take care. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 